All right, what's going on? We're back. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the best way to put it. We're back. After a brief hiatus of a, of a couple months, we've decided to, to roll back in with season two of The Cusp. Um, I guess, why did we take the break again, guys? What was the, what was the rationale? We needed, you know, to go into hibernation, you know, take a little bit of a sabbatical, rethink the podcast a bit as well. Um, you know, we really planned a lot of interesting content for the season. So, you know, hoping, hoping all of you guys enjoy the new stuff we have, we, we planned for the season. Yeah, I think yeah. we're a real warm weather podcast. No, I think also just like a lot of life things happened for us. You know, we were busy with with work, with exams. I start I, I started a new job. I moved out of my parents' house. Just a lot of life changes that we needed to figure out. And so was, that kind of put the the move. Move was good, man. Move was good. It's uh I don't know. It's it's a big change to be hundred percent on my own. I also turned, so I guess to the listeners, I turned twenty five recently, which was a big one. Like this one, this one felt big, and it was weird because like I had just gotten a new job, I just got my own apartment, and I turned twenty five, and I kind of had this feeling of everything that I was working towards, I accomplished, and I realized after that, so is this it? Like, is, is this, is this what it is to be an adult? I had, you know, I had a bit of a quarter life crisis. Yeah. And I I feel like there, there, there are a lot of reasons all of us could have been lost in our feels the last couple months. There's a lot of changes and obviously everyone's been through uh, quite the year. So, you know, people in, people in our age demo, you know, we're looking for guidance and, and I think that's kind of what we wanted to bring into the beginning of this season, you know? Uh, sorting some of that stuff out. Hundred percent. Tony, what what are the what are the troubles of a of a quarter life crisis? Twenty five year old. Compared to other people, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I think I think you know. A good way to divide this up would be you know work, love, and body and mind. I think that's like a really good three-pronged summary. Why don't, why don't you tell the listeners where you got this uh, magical three buckets, Tom? Yeah, yeah, tell the listeners, please. I'm... Well, I, you know, I recently read this book called The uh, the Defining Decade by Dr. Meg Jay. Um, I don't know if either of you have heard of it. Yeah, I've heard of it. <laughs> uh, yeah, Dr. Dr. Meg Jay wrote this book, Defining Decade. I think the first edition was in 2012. Um, so she's a clinical psychologist, you know, and, and her major area of, expe- as, of expertise, as she describes it, is 20-somethings. So everyone, you know, in the 20, 20-year age group and all of, their, all of their life journeys, ups and downs, she studies that. She has a practice where she's spoken to 20-somethings for, for decades now. And she kind of consolidated all of the information she's learned through her sessions and through research as well into the book, uh, The Defining Decade. It's a pretty quick read. I, 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 I crushed it in, in like five days, I have to say. And I guess lucky for us, uh, Dr. J was, well, recently, I guess, March 15th, I think, released a updated version of the book, The Defining Decade, yeah, with updated statistics. Yeah, right? Things have changed. Yeah. 
Yep, yep. Like uh, updated statistics, updated case studies, updated chapters, and so she, you know she, she was really looking TikTok in the book. Exactly, exactly. And so she was really looking to a podcast to promote the book, and luckily the cusp was available. So we're really excited <laughs> to see. That's a very nice, optimistic way of putting yeah. it. So ba- basically, this author was down to talk to us. <laughs> anyways, anyways, we're really excited to say that we got uh, Dr. Meg Jay, who is the author of The Defining Decade and Supernormal on the podcast. Um, you know, Dr. Meg was awesome. She was just a, a phenomenal guest. We really enjoyed our conversation with her. Um, funny enough, actually, just, just so the listeners know, she actually asked us to call her Meg, just to keep it casual, call her Meg, all of our clients call her Meg. And funny enough, we were laughing about this. It almost felt like we were one of her clients because throughout the interview, she kept asking, so what do you think? What, 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 what do you think about this? Yeah, we, it felt like we were on the couch of, of, of Meg, right? So <laughs> kind of felt like a bit of a therapy session. 100%, 100%. Well, hey, before we, we get going, I, I just wanted to say to the existing, our existing listeners, our existing audience, you know, thank you again for tuning in. We're really excited to give you content again. I know you've, some of you have been messaging us, like, when's the season coming out? When's the season coming out? Well, it's here, and more content will be coming soon. And I guess to our new listeners, welcome to the Cusp podcast. Do either of you guys want to maybe pitch what the podcast is, what we're talking about? Like, where have you been? Have you been living under a rock? You haven't heard of the cusp? Like, <laughs> come on. <laughs> okay, I'm kidding. But no, thanks. Thanks. Thanks for joining us, all, all new listeners. Um, yeah, we're the cusp podcast. Uh, it's three, three old, no, three young millennials and three old uh, Zoomers. You know, we couldn't decide which generation we are, we are, we are part of. So we just considered ourselves on the cusp. And we, you know, we bring to you social commentary from the lives of of three BIPOC individuals going through these, uh, through the challenges of our generation. So, you know, a lot of interesting topics come, come from that lens. And I'm really excited about today's episode about the defining decade, because we're all kind of right smack in the middle of it too. Yeah, we, we do our best not to sound dumb most of the time. And I think, I think we're partially successful. I, I would go that far, guys. So, and I partially. think we're going to continue that success in season two. Yeah. So, get ready for a partially successful podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Yet again. Anyways, uh, we'll, we'll stop with the self-deprecating humor. But thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoy the interview. So I think, yeah, we're good to roll, Meg. Um, so I think, why don't we just begin, um, Meg, could you maybe just you know introduce yourself to our audience? Some people might not know who you are, so could you give us a quick intro? Yeah, uh, my name is Meg Jay. I am a clinical psychologist and I specialize in, of all things, 20-somethings. Um, and I have a book out called The Defining Decade, which is for and about 20-somethings everywhere. Perfect. Um, so I think, you know, the, really the first question we wanted to ask is exactly on your book, The Defining Decade. So I believe you wrote the book in, um, sometime in 2012 was when it was first released and it's been, it's almost 11 years since then. Uh-huh. So I guess the first question is, you know, what is, what has changed in, in the last yeah, years since you so read the book? And 
Yeah, and I know you have a new version. So yeah, tell tell all this. Yeah. Um, yeah, here it is. Gray cover, same schematic. Um, yeah, so what's changed? Obviously, social media has changed. So when the first version of the book came out, there was a chapter in there called My Life Should Look Better on Facebook. That was back when everybody was on Facebook, you know, 100 years ago, maybe, but it was a, a decade ago. And what was interesting is at the time, the defining decade was one of the first places where people were talking about some of maybe the mixed feelings that they had about social media because it was so new. There was no data. There were no studies. I mean, there was very little what there was I could find. It wasn't much. And so um, anyway, so the books kind of hints at what's coming and sort of what we now know after 10 years of looking at, you know, life on social media and how people are enjoying or not enjoying that. And so um I would say the me social media part probably spans three chapters now, you know, at different points in the book. Um, I've done more with the love section. I included a part on conversations you might want to have with your partner at some point. And we could talk all day about when is it too early and when is it too late. Um, but people wanted more. They had more they wanted to hear about relationships and how to figure out, are my partner and I compatible? Um, and then I add a reader's guide at the end. A lot of people over the years have uh, emailed and said, I want a workbook. I want a reader's guide for my book club or my podcast. So now you have it. Nice, nice. And I, I actually really enjoyed Like I, I read the book in June of 2020 and I kept raving about it to, to the boys. And then I actually really enjoyed the additions that you nice. had this time. Yeah, yeah. Oh, nice. I actually had a really, really good time revising it. And I, I, I don't know that I was expecting not to, but I had a blast revising it and getting to add stuff that I wish I'd said or that I didn't know then that I do know now. And um, so I really, I really like the edition too. So thank you. Well, that's awesome. Well, why don't we dig into some themes from the book, if that's okay. Um, one of the themes that I really wanted to talk about was this theme of identity capital, or I think the way that you described it was kind of like the personal assets that you can show that describe who you are and what you've accomplished over time. Is that correct? Yep. Mm -hmm. Identity capital, I think, is a great concept for 20-somethings. And if you notice, it's the first chapter in the book after the intro, because I know my audience and I thought, okay, if they only get 25 pages in, I definitely want them to get this piece before they throw it across the room or, you know, put it down and never get back to it. Um, it's a really important piece of information for 20-somethings. And it's really a great way to think about what am I supposed to be doing in my 20s? And that's you know, going out there and doing things that add value to yourself. It's spending your time wisely. It's investing in yourself. You don't have to think about what am I going to be forever? What is this job that I'm going to take that I'm going to have for 40 years and get my gold watch and retire? That just doesn't happen anymore for better and for worse. Um, so it's really this idea that just go out there and make good use of your time, spend your time wisely and add value to who you are. And if you keep doing that in your 20s, then that will pay off in your 30s and beyond. And you just have to go one good piece of identity capital at a time.
Right, right. I think uh, the part that I really was interested about was like you kind of talked about young people balancing between crisis and capital, or otherwise put as like balancing exploration and identity discovery with making commitments in one's life. And the, the people、uh-huh. that balance that well have really strong identities. What I noticed was a lot of the chapter was focused on the yeah, harms yeah. of too much exploration. So people who don't make commitments in their twenties and spend、right. their twenties maybe underemployed or unemployed. But like in our social networks, I guess we're all fairly ambitious, you know, twenty-somethings. We see the opposite problem. Like we see a lot of like box checkers who are、mm-hmm. all capital generation, no exploration. And I'm wondering if you can、mm. kind of characterize、right. some of the harms of following a path like that. Yeah, well, I mean, as I said in that chapter, the happiest, most successful people they balance exploration and commitment. So you know, too much exploration, people sort of don't really, you know, sort of a, a rolling stone gathers no moss. You know, there's no there's no there there. They might have been here, there, and everywhere, but there's no center. And then, like you said, there are a lot of box checkers out there who feel like I need to do this and enjoy my life later. I need to do this and You know, worry or think about what I actually might want to do with my life later, and we know that doesn't make people very happy or successful either. It can just lead to a lot of burnout and alienation, where people feel like I look great on paper, but I don't feel great inside, or I look great on paper, or I did what my parents wanted, but I don't really feel like my life is for me. So it's really, you know, the sweet spot is that intersection between. Making commitments、um, and exploring, figuring out, okay, what commitments feel authentic for me? Okay, well, I guess jumping into that and just hitting that sweet spot of identity capital might might feel a little、uh, challenging for a lot of our listeners right now. Obviously, we're speaking to you at the tail end of a of a pandemic. A lot of our listeners might feel a little paralyzed as they try to network or build these connections. What would you recommend those people do,、uh, in if they're at home or if they're just starting to get back into work,、um, to to kind of build out that robust network? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. I think a lot of people this year have. I've actually gotten a lot of emails of people saying, "Oh no, I read your book and I want to do all the stuff, but I can't leave my house. <laughs> so what do I do?"、Um, and so I'll tell you what I've told them, which is, you know, not all identity capital, if, if that's what you want to focus on, not all identity capital comes from the office. And so, you know, some people, some of my clients this year have used the time to kind of. Take their careers in a different direction by studying something online, or finally studying for the grad school exam they'd meant to. Others are doing things that are good for them. I have a client who got sober this year; that was long overdue, and is going to help her a lot, both as a person, as a worker. I mean, it's far far more important than any particular job she could have had this year. So to just remember that not all identity capital is whatever your last job was. That sometimes there's hobbies that we have, or cool things that we learned about, or the fact that we speak a language that most people don't. I mean, it really could be anything. And I think what employers are going to want to know is not necessarily what did the pandemic do to you, or you know how did it harm you. They're going to know. They're going to want to know. So what did you do? I mean, how did you get through the year? And they don't expect you to have taken four classes online necessarily, but they may be interested in sort of how did you cope? 
because that says a lot about kind of what kind of resilience you're going to bring into the workplace. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. I, I agree with that, um, Meg. I think, you know, I speak to some of my friends, they, they tell me, you know, and they wanted me to ask you this as well, is like they feel like COVID was a, was a lost year. Um, so I just wonder, like, what's your what's your mm, response mm-hmm. to people like that? How, how can they reframe Yeah, it? yeah. Yeah, um, I would say we don't know that. And, you know, I mean, I think there are a lot of people out there, even pre-COVID, I got all kinds of emails over the years of, boy, I had a lost year in Brazil. (laughs) Or, boy, I had that lost year when I was waiting tables and should have been doing something else. So, you know, a lot of us have a lost year here and there for different reasons. It doesn't have to be the end of us. And so I think... You know, it's normal that when we're in uncertain, kind of threatening seeming situation, we imagine the worst. Um, But we don't know that maybe something that happened this year, maybe you started a podcast and dug into it because you could because of the pandemic, or maybe you listened to a podcast you wouldn't have otherwise that ended up taking your life in a different direction. Uh, Or maybe you went for your hundredth walk around your town and had an idea or moved or met someone that you wouldn't have otherwise. So we don't really know what the outcome of this is going to be. But one thing's for sure, 20-somethings have a lot of recovery time sort of in their lives and their careers. And I think for some people, the pandemic has helped people kind of feel that urgency of, oh man, it's true. My time isn't unlimited. Um, That, you know, they're feeling a bit of that. I got to get out there and get going. And that's probably accurate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think one one thing that I've noticed, at least, is a lot of my friends, you know, there was an article that blew up in The Atlantic about two years ago called The Religion of Workism is Making Us Miserable, right? And a lot of my friends in my network mm-hmm. kind of related to it because, you know, basically we spent years trying to get a job and we got this, I guess, burst of happiness when we got this job but then what we realized was you know after we started working the luster <laughs> kind of wears off like is this it like is this my life and i feel like the new relationship energy is is gone bingo you're out of honeymoon phase right and especially during the pandemic <laughs> right. and especially during the pandemic right because you're like you're really out of the honeymoon phase because you're not in like a corporate you know fancy office in manhattan you're at home in like right. a cramped apartment right. and i guess could you speak to maybe perhaps in your psychology practice or in your conversations with young people, how you've seen them discover meaning beyond work in an era where, you know, things like religion have lost, like a lot of people have turned away from religion or a lot of people have turned away from perhaps uh, their local communities. How, how have they found meaning? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think ultimately most of us want to find meaning well, I don't know, many of us want to find meaning through work. But even if you want that, it often isn't available in your 20s. So I have, I I do extremely meaningful work. But I wouldn't say that the training period, I don't know that graduate school felt very meaningful, it felt very grueling and dysfunctional, actually. So I know what you're saying of, even if we're headed toward having some meaning in our lives, you know, maybe our relationships you know, they're not at the meaningful phases yet. Work isn't at the meaningful phases. It's kind of how do we figure out what that's going to be for ourselves? And I think that's a really excellent question. And it's it's almost one of, 
short-term and long-term meaning that you may feel like, I can see my job being meaningful at some point, maybe when I'm a little bit further along, or my relationships being more meaningful when they're more established, if that's what you want. Um, But kind of how to think about what could I do that feels meaningful now, whether that's being more connected with people or your community or politics or social justice or volunteer work. I mean, just... But I really hear what you're saying, that I think it's true that when we don't have access to sort of robust long-term sources of meaning, we really have to find ways to get it for ourselves in the now. And that's going to look different for different people. But I, I, think, I think you're right. I've never thought about that way before, but I think it's true. Mm-hmm. No, that's a good point. Uh, so something you, you talk about a bit uh, throughout the book is, is this disparity in how maybe like older people view 20-somethings and the things they find meanings in. Meaning in. So for instance, you gave this example of, I think like only 10% of 20-somethings are looking to participate in this hookup culture. Uh, but that seems to be this pervasive media narrative about 20. So where, where do you think that comes right. from, uh, that, that kind of disparity? Uh, <laughs> I do not know. I feel like uh, every time I go on a radio show or, or something that's not hosted by 20-somethings, there's sort of a a checklist of questions that I'm asked. And what is, you know, why is everybody taking so long to grow up? And another one is, does everybody just have helicopter parents? I mean, it's just these funny, well, I don't know how funny it is, but there are these narratives out there that everybody's the same, that you've all got helicopter parents, that no one wants to grow up. And I, I mean, that is a teeny tiny fraction of the 20 somethings I've worked with. And, you know, like you're talking about a lot of the 20 somethings I know are working really hard to try to get going in life. And a lot of them would have killed to have had a helicopter parent. So, you know, I think what makes good for good articles and clickbait and some of the publications that are read by non-Gen Zers or non-Millennials or really non-Gen Xers, I'm a Gen Xer, um, I think is really different than your particular reality. I mean, I know that a lot of stuff that I read, that doesn't resonate with me at all in terms of my actual clients. Well, that's why the Defining Decade book came about is that there weren't books out there that really took the time period seriously and said, you know, let's talk. I see you. It's a difficult time. It's an important time. But meanwhile, it's being kind of trivialized in the media or criticized. Um, And it's funny, I think when the book was first kind of sold to publishers, people, actually one of the people in the publicity department said, no 20-something would be caught dead reading this book. And I said, well, I don't know about that. I have a private practice full of them. And so now, you know, it's sold half a million copies and it's on the 10-year edition. And so I think it's there's a real disconnect between the reality of being in your 20s and the way it gets talked about. How long some of those publishers were. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, fortunately for all of us, I guess. I guess yeah. just jumping into your comment that a lot of the 20 somethings, you know, would like kill for a, a helicopter parent. I think that's something that was, uh, I guess, interesting to a lot of us. A, some, a lot of our audience is, you know, in the BIPOC community and they might feel like they have two very strong helicopter parents, uh, which would be a real contrast to 
um, someone who who hears phrases like "you can be anything you want to." Um, so I guess, what is your advice to mm-hmm. to those people who say, "Hey, my parents want me to go to med school, law school, or maybe be an engineer, or an accountant, maybe an accountant," an- but that's like a tear mm-hmm. down, or 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 all those things. <laughs> Yeah, or, or both, right? The MD, PhD, and then you could, that's just in the first five years. Um, I mean, I think part of adulthood is, is claiming your own life. And so whether that means realizing your parents might not have helped you at all, and but now it's up to you, or whether that's realizing, geez, my parents have really smothered me, but I got to get out from under and now it's up to me. I mean, I think adulthood is really about claiming your life from here forward and, you know, no blame for what people didn't do or for what people did do too much, but to say from here on out, this is me, this is mine. And how do I want to do this? So, I mean, I think the advice, I mean, that's what's interesting about the defining decade is it's, it, it's written for and, from my, from my knowledge, really resonates across a broad spectrum of 20-somethings, because I'm really talking about human development, adult development, and maybe what kind of parents you had does is not necessarily um, maybe as important as we think. I wanted to pivot a little bit, actually, into uh, some of the talks in the book about relationships, dating, and love. I love that you had different parts in the book for the different parts of a 20-something's life. And one thing that really stuck out for me was that chapter about uh, cohabitation, uh, specifically kind of like your mm-hmm. your argument that, you know, cohabitation is not always a good idea for young people who want to test their relationship before marriage. Um, could you speak to this idea a little further for our listeners? Because, like, I've read it, I know the context, but I think it's really valuable yeah. to dive into. Yeah. You know, it really is. It's um, That's why it got its own chapter. And it's really because, I mean, in your 20s, you're more likely to live with a partner than get married or, you know, kind of make a lifetime commitment. So it's something we really need to think about. How does cohabitation work? Why, why do we do it? What are we hoping to get out of it? And so there's been kind of a general myth about cohabitation that it's, it um, is a good way to test a relationship and that there's kind of only upsides because you'll move in, no big deal. If things work out, you'll stay together. And if you don't, you break up. So it's kind of like a, what do you say? Like a risk-free trial is, is sort of the, the wrap on cohabitation. But actually, um, what the research says and what my clients have told me for, I'm set, it's scary to say, 20 years now, um, is that it's not quite risk-free, that it's not quite all upside. And I, I'm not against cohabitation, but I want my clients to consider the upsides and the downsides. So the upsides are, of course, cheaper rent, you know, more fun, more access to that person and your plans and whatever. Um, The downsides are, as my clients have told me, is that you get in something with a pretty low bar. It seems easy to sort of, you know, get rid of one set of rent and share a place. And that's lots of fun. But if it doesn't go well, it can be harder to get out than you're anticipating. And so what people will find out is six months in, I knew it wasn't right. Or one year in, I knew it wasn't right. 
but it wasn't that easy to get in, get out. And then that six months or that one year turned into two or three years. And so I, you know, I just asked my clients to consider what are the downsides of tangling your life up with somebody. If you're really just doing it for fun, what happens when it's not fun anymore? Or you're doing it to test it out. Well, what happens when the, you know, they kind of fail the test? How easy will it be for you to get out? I actually just got an email yesterday from somebody who was saying, I'm 22, I've been living with somebody a year and a half, and I'm just, for reasons I won't go into right on your podcast, but she said, I'm just too embarrassed to get out. And from the way she was phrasing her email, it sounded like at 22, she was going to decide to, you know, sort of bite the bullet for the next, what, 50 years um, that she just felt like she couldn't extricate herself. So I try to just help clients think about that, of that it's maybe not, it's easier to get into than it is to get out of. Yeah, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. I, As you were saying that, I, I worried about, you know, couples who maybe were at that point of making a critical decision whether they want to continue or not, and then the pandemic hit. And maybe, you know, just due to circumstances of the pandemic, they decided to stay well, right. even, <laughs> yeah. even longer, right? <laughs> so Yeah, yeah. Right. And hey, you know, I guess my, uh, you know, people have said that to me of, oh, no, all these people are moving in together because of the pandemic. Oh, I don't have a problem with that. My question is, if right about now you're not loving it, whether you'll get out and, um, you know, when the world opens up, will you say, you know what, this just didn't work out. Um, And I think that's the important part. It's not that you never move in with somebody, but that you pay attention to what you learn. And if what you learn is that you're super compatible, then, you know, sign up for another year or two or to, to whatever, you know, point you decide we're going to do this for good. But if what you learn is that the relationship really isn't working for you, then as inconvenient as it is, um, you've got to get out. Mm-hmm. Mike, I, I have a question on, on, on the relationships as well. So, you know. Uh, again, one of my one of my friends, a big fan of yours, and and when I told her that I'll be speaking to you, she sent me a ton of questions. She said I have to ask uh, Tom. You have to ask Meg when you when you talk to her. So uh, one of the questions one of the questions she had was she felt that in the book when you talked about dating, your general advice was kind of you know take dating seriously in your twenties. Make sure you really think of the long term. And she she was struggling to find the balance of. You know, how do I take dating seriously, but also open myself up to maybe somebody with different characteristics that 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 I otherwise may not have given them a chance? How do you really strike that balance? And I and I know in your book you talk about mm-hmm. you know there's certain characteristics that should be similar between you and your partner, and there's certain characteristics that maybe you don't have to be exactly the same. Could you maybe walk our listeners through a, a thought process of how they can really mm-hmm. think about those key key um, characteristics? Yeah, well, you know what? In the updated edition, I actually took that part out and instead have the 29 conversations to have with your partner because I actually felt like that was really, instead of having it be sort of this mysterious quiz, you know, let's have conversations with ourselves and with our partners. And, you know, I think it's a, it's a bit like identity capital that may be the sweet spot in dating in your 20s is both exploration and commitment that I mean that part of the beauty of the fact that people tend to settle down later than they used to 
is that you can use the time before that to really learn something. So if you're just sort of like fun, 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 explore, 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 you know, I'm not really sure how much you're learning after a certain point, but if you, you know, don't explore and don't try to figure out what kind of relationships make you happy or not, you might be, you might not be learning much either. So I think it's, you know, for your friend, I think it's both balancing, taking some relationship risks, exploring different types of relationships, maybe people with different backgrounds or of different ages or different, um, you know, occupations or interests, like getting outside of your tiny little bubbles can be useful. But again, it's almost like living together, pay attention to what you're learning. And, you know, if things don't work, it's time to acknowledge that to yourself and, you know, move on for, and, you know, learn what you had to learn and move on to the next thing. So I guess the chapter that's 29 conversations to have with a partner, it, it it's the conversations are to have with a partner, but they're also to have with yourself so that you think about not like, what does my partner want all the time, but, but what do I want? What was I thinking about when or whether I might want to have kids or what was I thinking about how important travel is to me and to kind of have those conversations in your mind as you're getting to know people, you know, even before you might be talking to them about that, I think can be useful that too often we're too concerned about what other people want rather than what we want. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, one thing in the relationship section that I thought was interesting was well, you didn't talk about it too deep, but I remember reading it and I was like, huh, I relate to that. And it was like how a lot of young men uh, put off figuring out relationships until they have the quote unquote, like work thing figured out. Right. And I was laughing because I've had this yeah, conversation yeah, yeah. with so many of my guy friends where it's just like, I they're like what about dating and I'm like I'll, I'll do it you know once I get this job or once I figured this out why do you think that is especially prominent with young men in their 20s like what do you think is, is it the the desire to be a breadwinner is it the economic like what what do you think it is well I'm chuckling I don't you know y'all can see me I don't know if you're listeners will be able to see this, but because of course I'm doing the therapist thing where I'm thinking, why do you think that is? I'm curious about <laughs> what you're, what you, what, what, what you say. So, and I'm being sincere here. I do have thoughts, but I'm truly interested in yours or, you know, your co-hosts. Why do you think that is? Um, I'll take a quick stab if you guys want to go in from there. But like, I think for, for me, at least it was like, um, figuring out what I wanted to do for work with my life was just such a huge question and source of anxiety in university that it became like, let me figure this out. And it almost felt like if I didn't figure this out, I like would have that source of anxiety going into any relationship. And um, so it almost felt like, you know, this is what I needed to figure out first. But like, as I, I think I've, as I've gotten older and I've like started working, I'm, I kind of just realized like, you're never going to fully figure this out. But now that you're maybe on the path, maybe you should start looking at other parts of your life. So that's, that's kind of been my journey. What do you guys think? Okay. Yeah, I feel like I feel like a lot of this might be kind of this, the social circle. I, I knew you, you, you know, you've come up in Ankur, I, I, me as well. Like, I think a lot of the people we know that are our age are very career oriented. So I think a lot of the time, you know, other contemporaries our age might might say like, Hey, I'm more interested in a relationship, but that, I feel like that just, that doesn't come up in 
for with a lot of the people people that that you might know or that I might know. Mm -hmm. Tom, yeah, I think you guys have covered it really. It's I feel like we grew up with the expectation that as a as a guy as a man, you know, you that's kind of what you have to bring to the table in a relationship. So if you don't have that sorted, you're not ready. So I, I feel like there's just that pressure. Um, that's mm -hmm. that's what yep. I think is is the big one for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. See, y'all are so smart. Um, you could have written my book. So that that is, and you're right, I kind of hint at it, I mention it, but that that's what I have always heard is kind of a couple of pieces. One is, and I think this is true also for young women these days as well, of feeling like, okay, work is the first thing. Because I mean, we've got to pay our bills, we got to put food on the table, we're probably not going to have a partner for quite some time. And I've got to, you know, pay my car payment until then. So, and I've got to go somewhere every, all day, every day. So, you know, work tends to come first. Um, and that makes a ton of sense. I think it also helps, like you said, you feel more confident going into relationships. So when people say, what do you do? You don't feel immediately like, oh no, they asked me that question that makes me anxious and insecure. So um, you kind of <laughs> want to get past that point. And I think it makes a lot of sense for men and women. But I think it's really true that, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And I think there's certain ways in which gender roles haven't changed as much as we think they have. Um, no, I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying that is what I hear that, you know, and I mentioned some of this research in the updated version that when push comes to shove, couples will say, well, you know, the, the, Female is probably more of the primary parent and the male is probably more of the primary breadwinner. And I don't know if that's healthy or unhealthy or right or wrong, but it is still what it is. And I do think that young men feel that pressure more than women, whereas there's somewhere in a lot of women's heads of, well, I want to work. I probably need to work, but maybe I don't. And But for men, it's sort of this, I really need to work. And I'm not sure if I want to or not, but I really need to work. And so I think that it's it, there's different pressure there. So I agree with you. I also like what you said about how at some point you have to find a way to put, you know, work and love together. And, um, you know, I think once you get on your feet and feel like, okay, this isn't an all-consuming question anymore, you know, how can I start incorporating other facets um, into my life? Um I do think that's healthy and needs to happen. And from what I hear, um, I think 20-something women wish 20-something men would hurry up and do that a little sooner. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. <laughs> so, so there's sort of a lot of like, why do I keep hearing that I can't deal with you until I get my career completely sorted? And um, and so, you know, starting to sort is probably important. I don't know if you can completely sort it. We talked a lot about dating. One of the things that we've noticed with dating, with the proliferation of apps like Tinder, Bumble, Hinge, and like with the rise of online dating is it seems like there's just a whole bunch of choices. And we have to make choices based off, you mm -hmm. know, largely at first superficial 
um, considerations. I guess the question that, that I had was around, how do you, I guess, learn to live with the choices you make and be happy with the choices you make when, you know, potentially the grass could be greener on the other side the whole time? <laughs> um, see, now I'm going to do the therapist thing again, and I'm going to ask, so, because I'm genuinely curious. So, how, What's been your experience of that so far, if you don't mind my asking? So I'm assuming you look around on apps, maybe meet, you know, whatever with different people. But at some point, maybe you pick someone at least for a while or no. And, and how, do, how do you how do you do that? And do you guys want to take a first stab at this? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, well, I think the first thing I'll say is, you know, it's... But what you're saying is, no, we don't. <laughs> no, I, I think it's, you know, because you're on these apps and most, most times on most of the apps, you get a picture and maybe a few prompts about the person. So you kind of have to make your judgment almost instant, like instantly on the spot. Like, is this person going to be a good match for me or not? And I think we're making those choices right. off very superficial things. We're not really getting to know the person, but you're like swiping left or you're swiping right. So I think that's one part that there's a bit of a, you know, if, if somebody's profile isn't like 99% there, you just swipe left because it's so easy to get to the next one. And, and hopefully you can get someone who's even, even better. Right. So I think that's really affecting right. our choices. Yeah. I think there's also uneven experiences, right? Like you talk to some 20 somethings and the experiences, I literally have thousands and I can't like, it's just like too intimidating to pick between. You talk to other 20 somethings and it's like, I don't have Right. barely any options nobody matches with me and then you have the whole i feel insecure right so i'm not getting matches and so these, these apps are actually negatively impacting my senses of security right so right. i think it really just depends like based off like how you how your relationship with the apps is yeah i mean i think what uh, there are you know a, a new kind of small bit of information that's in the updated version that wasn't in the original is some cool stuff that uh some of the research from Match actually, and um, and Helen Fisher, she's a like a sexual anthropologist, and in in both cases, it was sort of their experience, her experience that you know these sites are not dating sites; they're meeting sites, right? Like you don't you just meet or swipe or not swipe or arrange something or not arrange something. And that then, presumably, in many cases, this will go to a face-to-face -face situation, and then life will take it from there, much in similar, you know, much how it always has, or certainly has for the past several decades. So I think, you know, some of the, I have infinite choices, and there's, grass is always greener, is kind of a, kind of a, a mind trick in a way, because that's true as long as you're just on your phone. But then once you actually go meet someone, you you do know more than the superficial and you do know, okay, yeah, I like this person. We're, we're going to do something else here or I don't like this person and they're not for me. And so I think, you know, once we kind of get to in person, that's how you start to know more than the superficial. And I think that's what helps people say, you know, I don't care if there's other green grass, other places. I really like this person because once I'm in person with this person, like I feel like that's that's all I need. Um, but I don't think it's easy for that to happen on the phone. 
So, right. so what would you say would make like a, a date stand out? Because this is something we we've all talked about in the past, where you know, yeah, you're on the app. There's a little bit of like paralysis by analysis, but then when you meet the actual person, it's it's not necessarily just <laughs> just you that feels that way. It it might be them as well. You know, they might be looking at the other you know green lawns. And so, how do you how do you how do you gauge whether, you know, there's like this mutual, I guess, spark um, beyond like the, the superficial characteristics? Um, gosh, that's so subjective. And I, I won't this time ask how you've done it in the past because y'all are just going to like hang up on me if I keep turning the ta- <laughs> tables around. We, we don't mind. It's free. That, I mean, that's, nice. that's such a... <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I guess I just feel, I guess I feel like if every time you go on a date with someone, I mean, and this becomes a pattern where you're like, eh, the girl, there's probably somebody better on my phone out there somewhere. And this, you know, you sort of keep going to life looks a lot better on my phone than it does in person. You might want to sort of do a little head check there on whether the, you know, possibilities are really in touch with like the reality of who you are and who another person is and what it's like to be like a human and, you know, three dimensions off of the phone. Um, so, I mean, if you feel like, gosh, I never feel this part because I always think there's something better on my phone somewhere, then maybe that's something you should take a look at. I think for, but it's certainly okay to say, gosh, somebody really look better on the phone than they do in person. And we get together, there's no spark. I mean, that's legit. That happens. Um, But I think, you know, it's asking somebody like, how do you know when the spark there? I mean, that's just something that, I mean, truly evolution and chemistry is sort of, you're wired to sort of be like, hey, this person is sparking something for me and I want to see them again. And that's yeah. it. Like, you know, it doesn't have to be a spark of, I think this is the one. It's just more of, do I want to spend another evening, you know, with this person on this person and just kind of going one bit at a time. Um, So I guess my shorter answer is you'll know if there's a spark. Um, Although if you feel like you're always feeling more of a spark on a phone than in person, you're, you might kind of maybe being losing touch with, you know, like what real people are like, or, you know what I mean? What, you know, the imperfections of real people. And I guess we'll see all this manifest as people, as the world starts opening back up and people start doing dates in person again. (laughs) So I wanted to to pivot the conversation a bit. Um, So, you know, the book, there was the three, I guess, main sections. There was the work section, there was the dating and relationship section. And then there was a section about the mind and the body and kind of like some cognitive things that I thought was, you know, really interesting as well. And the specific part I wanted to talk about was, you know, you talked about how, you know, because 20 something's brain, frontal lobes are not completely developed. They're usually more prone to emotional thinking and than logical thinking sometimes. And it manifests where, you know, 20-somethings will be in careers and they'll dwell on negative feedback or mistakes for far longer than older people. 
And frankly, I really resonated with this. Like I find whether it's a work mistake or a potential for misunderstanding in my personal life, sometimes I'll blow it out of proportion emotionally, even though my logical self knows like this, this shouldn't be that big of a concern. Like you're 20 something, you're going to make mistakes, whether Mm -hmm. it's personally or personally. So I guess what I wanted to ask, and you talked about a little bit in the book, but I'd like to clarify in the podcast is what would you recommend to young people to help deal with feelings of inadequacy or a negativity bias? Yeah, so you're so what you said is you're absolutely right. You did a good job describing it. And that's really that's human nature. So negativity bias is I mean humans in any uncertain situation are evolved to see the negative, the what if, right? That's how we protect ourselves or get ready for what could go wrong. So um so it's natural to sort of see the negative. I think the more experience you have around, wow, I thought the worst and then it didn't turn out to be, or I thought my boss was going to fire me, but he didn't, or somebody didn't text me. I thought they were going to break up with me, but they didn't. Just the more you go through that, eventually experience starts to tell your brain, you know, don't believe everything you think, or, you know, fears aren't facts. And that, you know, kind of the your emotional brain that's really quick, that's kind of fear-based is working faster and stronger than the the prefrontal cortex, which is that uh, slow your roll. Just because your boss had a, you know, was short with you today, doesn't mean you're going to get fired tomorrow. You get better at kind of having that conversation with yourself and moving on. Um, But it takes practice. I mean, it takes literally, I'm sorry to say thousands of repetitions of, Oh, I imagined the worst, or I couldn't stop thinking about something and then didn't turn out to be before you really learn, like, you know, things will probably be okay. Or even if I get fired, I'll find another job, you know, that if you go through enough breakups and then you realize there's another person out in the world somewhere, then each one doesn't seem as catastrophic. You know, it's fun. This is not quite what you asked, but I was talking about this with somebody the other day. I'll never forget this. My agent, I had a, a, I have another book um, called Supernormal, which we won't get into it right now, but is an awesome book. And um, but one person reviewed it quite negatively in the New York Times, and I, you know, told my agent, "Oh, poor me! I got a, you know, I, you know, whatever. I got a bad review in the New York Times." She said, well, you're a real author now. You've been shredded in the New York Times. And like, that was it. You know, it was sort of like <laughs> done, you know, dust yourself off and move on. There's nothing else to say. And it's funny. I, I think I, that's about as much time as I spent on that. You know, I was like, you're right. Forget it. And but, you know, something so much smaller would have had me wrapped around the axle for days when I was in my 20s. And that's because I had less experience and, you know, and my emotional brain was still sort of leading the charge. Right, 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 right. Um, Meg, I know you have maybe just about three minutes left here with us, so we'll make sure we get you out in time. But I, I, I had just a, a question, actually kind of, kind of two questions. But, um, you know, as I was reading your book, I was thinking, you know, this is such good advice for 20-somethings. It's just nice to hear someone, like, speaking to you honestly and talking to you honestly. And I wondered, you know, firstly, who spoke to Meg when she was in her 20s and had this kind of honest conversations with her, and, and if, if anybody? And secondly, you know, if, you know, there's some people who might not be able to get access to therapy or, or get access to, you know, other kind of things like that. So I, I just wonder 
how else can 20-somethings have this conversation um, and, and maybe get that kind of counseling or mentorship? So kind of, I know it's a kind of a two-parter question, but I just wanted to make sure yeah. we cover that. No, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, I had a, um, an undergrad mentor that I think I kind of mentioned so briefly. Well, I had a few that have come up here and there. So for me, a lot of them ended up being professors in undergrad or grad who very rarely, you know, or it was rare for people to sort of step outside of that academic um, frame and, you know, give me some straight advice about, hey, I thought you were going to go to grad school by now. <laughs> what are you doing? Or, gee, do you want to have kids? And are you thinking about fitting this in somehow? And I mean, those were questions that people were, you know, was sort of like, that's eh, just really not my role, or maybe it's not politically correct to kind of ask people things like that. Um, but it was very useful for me when people did sort of force me to figure out what is it you want and how is it all going to fit. And um, so in a way, that's what a lot of my work with 20-somethings is about. And the whole reason I wrote The Defining Decade is that I saw that, you know, unless you go see a therapist, and frankly, most of them don't specialize in 20-somethings, so most people aren't going to have access, you know, either personally, culturally, financially, or even just geographically to a therapist who really could help them in that area. I mean, that was really why I wrote The Defining Decade is that I felt like a lot of what I was saying to clients, I was saying over and over again, and that somebody should really put it out there. So if you have a library card or $15, then you can have access to that conversation too. Um, the up, kind of in a sort of another effort to make that even more true in the updated edition, there's a reader's guide in the back. I think I mentioned that earlier because I actually felt like, you know, the people who are emailing me are right that they wanted to hear more. They wanted to hear more questions of what do you ask your clients and what kind of, you know, how are you pushing them and what are you asking them to ask themselves? So, I mean, that's really what I've tried to do with the book. Um, but you know, more and more there are great podcasts like yours where people are talking to each other and getting each other thinking about their lives and um, TED Talks and you know I mean that's the nice thing about social media and the internet is that you know now the information's more out there than before. All right, folks, thank you so much for listening. That's that's the end of today's episode. I guess first off, we got to give a big shout out to Dr. Meg J or Meg for coming on the pod and just giving us all this wisdom. Again, the, the Defining Decade, the book that she's written is phenomenal. She's been working in the space for years. She's been working with 20-somethings for years. She's clearly passionate about it. And for Tony, Tom, and I, it was just so much fun to be able to speak with her. So big shout out to her and her team again for, for allowing us to have that conversation. If you enjoyed that conversation, if you're enjoying the podcast, like always, we ask that you please share the podcast with your friends and family or anyone who, who would who would enjoy the pod. We, we'd love to grow the pod. So yeah, please share it. Also, give us a follow. We're at The Cusp Pod on Instagram, on Twitter. We also have a YouTube channel that we try to upload some certain clips and you know full episodes to as well. So you can check that out as well. For new listeners, again, welcome to this podcast. We 
are a podcast that's focused on culture and current events from the lens of our specific generation, kind of on the cusp between millennials and Gen Z. And we have done a whole variety of topics in the past, everything from mental health for men and toxic masculinity to what kind of cities young people want to live in to the significance of Canada Day and how we feel as people of color living in Canada. So yeah, definitely check out our old episode catalog. And in the meantime, to our existing audience, I know you've all been waiting very patiently. We have a ton of content coming out, including very soon an episode by popular demand an episode about dating so we're going to be talking about our non-existent dating lives and you can listen to you can listen to us i guess discuss our mistakes and reflect on our pain i guess it sounds dark no it, it's funny it's, it's a fun conversation we actually had a lot of blast recording it so yeah you can listen to that and yeah again like always appreciate y'all listening um, everyone stay healthy, stay safe, and we look forward to talking to you again very soon. Bye-bye now.